Well, if you brought your Bible today, and I hope you did, will you open it to Luke 22, please? Luke chapter 22. We're continuing in the series that we've called Pray Like Jesus. We've been journaling, journaling through the, the book of Luke to see how Jesus prayed throughout. And, and as we've gotten further and further into this series and, and further and further into Jesus's life or closer to the end of his ministry on earth, we've seen that Jesus spends a lot of time praying about hardship and difficulties and, and suffering. And, and today what we're going to see is that um, that's exactly the context in which Jesus is praying in today's prayer. He's actually not praying about someone else's hardship, but he's praying about the suffering that he is about to, to endure. We're in Luke 22. We're actually going to pick up just a few verses after last week's conversation. Um, you'll remember that last week we said it happened kind of at the end of the Last Supper well, by the, by the point we're reading today, they've left the upper room, Jesus and the disciples, and they've, they've headed out. Apparently, they all knew where they were going, although it's never really announced, because it, after the, the, the scene we're going to peek in on today, Judas shows up with a band of people who are going to arrest Jesus. And the only way he would have known where to go is if it was common knowledge where Jesus would be taking his disciples. Luke 22, I'm going to start reading in verse 39. Luke writes, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, what is the place? Where did Jesus go to spend his last night in prayer? Say it loud. The Mount of Olives, we know that. But more specifically, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that, but the other gospel writers do. Jesus spent his last night praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, it's, it's no mistake that Jesus spent his last night in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. You see, all of Scripture, everything that God is up to with mankind, kind of turns or hinges around three gardens. Okay, and, and maybe, you've, maybe you've realized this before, but if not, your mind will be blown here in a minute. Uh, you've got the Garden of Eden, which is in Genesis 1 through 3, right? That's where the, that's where the story of God and his people starts is in the Garden of Eden. Uh, if you jump all the way to the end of the Bible, uh, Revelation 21 and 22, you've got what John describes as a garden city, the, the new heavens and new earth that came down. It's, it's a garden. It's the Garden of Eden, the way that God always intended it. That's the second garden, the, the one at the end of the story or, or where we begin to spend all of eternity with God. And then here in the middle, you've got this Garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, man sinned and forever introduced sin, rebellion into our story. In this second garden... This man will make a decision that will deal with that sin for eternity. And because of what happens here, God can invite us into this third garden, this, this garden city, this new earth that John describes in Revelation. It's no accident that Jesus spent his night praying in the garden because that's where it needed to happen in order for Jesus to accomplish what he was sent to accomplish. So Luke writes, on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. 
This metaphor of a cup is an interesting metaphor. I mean, to be honest, at first, it really doesn't sound too intimidating, does it? Like, I don't usually ask people to take a cup from me unless I'm asking them to take it and refill it, right? Uh, but this is a pretty serious metaphor. As a matter of fact, think of it in light of Revelation 14.10, where, uh, where John writes that those who reject Jesus, I'm going I'm to read this so I get it right, um, they, they will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. You see, as Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, this isn't just about the fact that he's going to be betrayed shortly by one of his followers. This isn't just about the fact that he's going to go through 12 hours of, of trials of, you know, kangaroo court, so to speak, where he's falsely accused of lies. It's not about the fact that he's going to be flogged, the, the 40 minus one lashes, which is specifically calculated to take him within a hair's breadth of death. It's not even that he's going to be crucified and endure the pain of that. That's not what Jesus is praying about. When Jesus says, take this cup from me, he's praying that he won't have to drink the wine of God's fury poured full strength in the cup of God's wrath. His wasn't just another death. In his death on the cross, he was taking on all sin my sin, your sin, sin you, you know, from the first garden all the way to the third garden, all of that sin was being placed on Jesus. He was the sacrificial lamb, the, the substitutionary atonement. That's the cup he didn't want to drink. He didn't want to have to deal with God's wrath because he knew what that meant. He knew that it would be full strength. So he prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood. The Greek word here is thrombos. Has anyone ever had deep vein thrombosis? Where you get like a coagulation or a thickening, a clot in a vein that's not close to the skin. Often air travelers get it or people who are in beds for a long time. That's the word that Dr. Luke uses to describe what happens here. This is more of a capillary thrombosis, or the, the technical term is hematidrosis. He says that uh, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. You've heard of people sweating bullets. Well, this is an actual phenomenon of people sweating blood. So here's we read this encounter, and we hear Jesus' prayer. Uh, we see how intense it is, how raw it is. The, the prayer again is, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And we're going to turn and we're going to look at those, the words of that prayer in, in a few moments. But, but first, let's just stop and think about the fact that as Jesus prays this prayer, his humanity is on full display. Now, we understand, we believe about Jesus that, that he was God, right? He was the second member of the Godhead, the second person who took on flesh. And as he took on flesh and was born as a human, uh, he became fully human while maintaining, you know, his, his full godness. And at some moments in the Gospels, it, it, it almost feels like we see more of God. And at some times it seems like we 
we see more of, of his humanity. Now, that's not the case. That's just our perception. But here we definitely see and are reminded that Jesus is fully human. Jesus has lived his entire life up to this point in the shadow of the cross. I believe he knew from the moment he was old enough to understand and talk, whatever that looked like for, for him, he knew where his life was going. He knew that the culmination of his time on earth would be spent on a cross. That's not new information to Jesus. And yet as the moment comes and the cross, if you will, is standing at the door knocking, Jesus is like, Father, I don't want to do this. I do not want to do, if there's any other way that we can accomplish the salvation of mankind, if there's any other way that we can invite mankind into the garden city at the end of time, let's do it that way because I don't want to do this. I cannot do this. Now, without a doubt, drinking the, uh, the wine of God's fury poured full strength in the cup of his wrath, that's, that's something no, none of us, Lord willing, will ever need to face. But I think we can relate to Jesus' desire here to walk away. To say, I'm done. I can't do this. This is too much. I mean, realistically, who here has not at some point in life had the desire to quit? Like, I, I would guess we've all come to the point where we want to just throw our hands up and walk away from something, to walk away from our job, uh, to walk away from our church, to walk away from our spouse. We've invested ourselves in, in helping someone who, who can't help themselves and, and, and always needs more help. And at some point, we're just like, it's just too much. We get tired of pouring ourselves out and, and standing in the gap for, uh, for people who are ungrateful and, 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 and maybe don't even realize the way that we're pouring ourselves out for them. We've all come to the point at some time in life where we've wanted, like Jesus here, to say, I can't do this. There has to be a different way. I'm done. I'm walking away. I'm checking out. And so what I'd like to do today as we look at this passage is, is I'd like to suggest to us four prayer cues, four cues that we can take from Jesus' experience in the Garden of Gethsemane so that we can pray as Jesus prayed when he was facing a desire to quit, to walk away, to, to be done with what God had called him to do. Let's look at those four quickly. First of all, number one, start praying before it gets hard. Notice what Luke writes in verse 39. We've got it up here on the screen. It says, Jesus went out. What are the next two words? Say them together. As usual. Jesus went out as usual. Apparently, and we, we've seen this throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus made a habit of praying in the evening, right? We've seen that multiple times throughout Luke's gospel. And not only apparently at evening, but we, we gather from this that when Jesus was in or near Jerusalem, he typically went to the Mount of Olives at evening to pray. This all fits with what we've learned about Jesus and Luke. He likes to pray on mountaintops. There's, uh, there's, there's specific reason which we've discussed about that previously. But the point was that Jesus had made it a habit 
of prayer. And again, we've seen this. Jesus is always praying. He's praying all the time in Luke. Like uh, every, you know, every page we turn, we find Jesus praying multiple times. And so apparently Jesus was such in the habit of praying that now in the moment when he needed prayer the most, it was second nature to him. It was a knee-jerk response. It was, this is just what he did. He prayed. And so if we all agree and understand that we have and probably will face other times when we've just wanted to quit because it got too difficult or too dicey or too sticky or too whatever, then maybe one of the things we would consider is praying now starting this habit of praying now before it gets so hard and so deep that we want to quit. You see, if I'm not in the habit of praying before things get too difficult, before I'm flooded, if you will, there's very little chance that praying while I am flooded is going to help me quickly discern and discover God's will. I'm speaking humanly. Okay, but if I'm not in the habit of praying now and I wait until things are so bad and then I throw up a prayer or two, I'm not as likely to find that those prayers help me to connect as clearly with God's will as if I made it a habit of praying before it got to the point where I had to pray. And so if, if things are going well now, if you would take an inventory of your life and you would say, this is a good season of life, things are going well, I'm really pleased, it feels good, I enjoy my life. Let me just encourage you again to start now in the good season and make a habit of prayer. But don't misunderstand the point. If right now you would look around and you would say, you know what, there's some tough things going on. There's this, there's this relationship that's on the rocks. There's these, these things happening at my workplace. There's, you know, whatever it is, don't misunderstand me. It's not like you shouldn't start praying now. Absolutely start praying now. But be praying. Don't just pray. Be praying. Do you understand the difference? See, too many times I think our tendency is to pray. We, we say a prayer. We, we throw up a prayer. And then we make our decision. I would suggest that the key, especially in the midst of hard times, is not to say a prayer and make a decision. The prayer is to be praying about it. To pray multiple times, to pray, as Paul says, without ceasing, to pray with others, to find some other people who we trust and, and tell them what's going on and ask them to pray with us and, and listen to their advice and counsel and, and to pray in ways that we haven't prayed before, maybe in, in places that we haven't prayed before. When we think we're pretty sure now that we've, we've been praying enough that we have an answer, to push the pause button and pray some more. One of the ways to deal with this desire to quit, this temptation to walk away, is to be praying before it gets hard, to create that habit when life is easier. Number two, I think the second thing we can see in this passage is to, to try praying in a new way, to try praying in a new way. Again, notice what Luke writes in verse 41. So, so Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. That's his disciples. 
And he knelt down and prayed. It's interesting to me that Luke writes that Jesus knelt down and prayed. You see, Matthew and Mark both record this night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And listen to how Mark writes it. He says that that Jesus fell to the ground and prayed. Matthew's even more specific. He says that Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed. Now, the interesting thing to me isn't that that Luke writes that he knelt and and Mark's is kind of ambiguous, but Matthew said that Jesus was, was prostrate as he prayed. That's not the curious thing to me. The curious thing to me is that all three of these gospel writers say that Jesus didn't pray like the ordinary Jew would pray. You see, the typical prayer posture for a Jew was was to stand with eyes and hands lifted to the heavens and to pray to the one who is enthroned in the heavens, I pray, Psalm 123.1. This was typical for Jews, often with their, their talit or their prayer shawl, but it was eyes to the heavens, we're praying to God, our attention is fixed on God, our posture is pointed towards God. But Luke writes on this occasion, Jesus needed a different posture. He needed to pray differently. The first church that I had the privilege of serving as youth pastor was a small country church out in, in uh, St. Joseph County, Napanee, Indiana. Figure that out. Um, Oak Grove Missionary Church. And, and um, <clears throat> with the, the pastor there, uh, several of us men and me as a youth pastor, we, we began a habit of praying on Sunday morning before worship. So we would show up early to this, this, this church building in, in the middle of four Amish cornfields. And, uh, and we would spend time in the sanctuary on Sunday morning before anyone else was in the building. And we would pray. Now, it's pretty typical as far as maybe some prayer groups that you've been part of in the past. We would come in. We would take a few minutes talking with each other, seeing how our week went. Um, you know, we'd be seated here on the, you know, the front couple rows of the, uh, of the sanctuary. And, and uh, you know, there was, there was altar. And so sometimes the pastor would sit on the altar. Maybe we'd look through the bulletin to see what we're going to pray about. Or the pastor would tell us about some things going on in the church that, that we should pray for. Kind of typical as far as Sunday morning prayer groups went. And then when we got done with that, we would pray. And typically we'd pray sitting again in the, the front couple pews and, and we'd lean forward, you know, hands folded, you know, heads bowed kind of thing, eyes closed. And, and if you happen to be sitting in the second row you, and, and we're a college student, you may just prop your head on the pew in front of you and, and uh, fall asleep during prayer. So I heard. <laughs> but I remember one particular morning, just kind of in the routine of this, you know, this every Sunday prayer group with these men. One Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit came on us in a way that we had never experienced before and we never did again while I was part of this this prayer group. And, And the Holy Spirit in that moment urged us, now is the time to cry out for Chuck. Chuck was an upperclassman in the youth group, and, and he was very regular and very faithful on Wednesday night youth group and to youth events, but, but not so much on Sunday mornings. He came occasionally, and, and his grandma came occasionally on Sunday morning, but uh, Chuck, Chuck, Chuck was a great guy, wonderful kid, had great leadership potential. God was working in his life, but, but Chuck had never given his life to the Lord on. That Sunday morning, the Holy Spirit came and said, I want you to cry out for Chuck's salvation. And so to a man, we were on our knees on our face before the Lord, praying that Chuck would be saved. This wasn't how we usually prayed. It was a different posture. It was a a different intensity. 
And I wonder if you ever had an experience like that in your life where, where something shifted and you knew that you couldn't pray in the same way that you've always prayed. You couldn't take the same posture. You couldn't take the same volume, the same intensity. You, even, uh, you didn't even know what to pray because even the old words that you normally pray weren't sufficient for that moment. I would suggest that there comes a point when we're dealing with this urge to, to, to give up, to walk away, or to not start, that we need to try a new way of praying. Here's, here's maybe some practical helps. We've got a, just a, a graphic we'll put up here. Um, this is called different ways to prayer. You, you probably can't read it from where you're at, but you can see the postures and each of them has uh, one or more scripture references under it where it talks about people in the Bible praying as they're sitting, as they're standing, as they're walking, as they're kneeling with, you know, hands up like we just talked about or, or, or pray, uh, you know, prostrate. Uh, try a different posture. Or on your notes, you'll notice there's a web address under this point in your notes. Maybe check on that and, and, and see about some different, uh, different ways to pray, different exercises, if you want to call them that, that you can use to pray. Things that have proven helpful for Christians over the generations to try these things, to pray in these ways, ways that we don't normally pray, but through which God can speak in a new way. Another prayer cue that I'd like to suggest we could take from the Garden of Gethsemane is number three, pray for a strengthener, not a solver. It's kind, of, it's kind of weird. We don't normally talk like that. Pray for a strengthener, not a solver. Let me, let me show you what we're talking about here. One of the details that Luke writes about the Garden of Gethsemane that no other gospel writer does is verse 43. Luke writes, an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. Now, angels play a significant role throughout all of the Gospels, right? I mean, you can probably think of some time when the angels appeared. Back at the beginning of the Gospels, an angel appeared to Zechariah and said, uh, your wife who's barren is going to give birth. And uh, an angel appeared to Mary and said, uh, Mary, you're going to conceive and you're going to be with child. And an angel appeared to Joseph, Jesus's, you know, stepfather, if you will, um, three times. He appeared to him and said, don't worry, she's pregnant by God, not by another man. An angel appeared to Joseph and said, you need to get out of here, go to Egypt, otherwise your family is going to be exterminated. And an angel appeared to him again a couple years later and said, it's safe now. You can leave Egypt and go back to Nazareth. Uh, let's see, angels appeared to the shepherds and announced that Jesus had been born. Angels appeared to Jesus at the end of the temptation, right? Um, uh, then, then the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him, it says, after 40 days of facing off with Satan in the wilderness. Um, at the end of the story, at the end of the Gospels, uh, Jesus is resurrected. The women go to the tomb in the morning to put more spices on the body. And what do they find there? They find two angels saying, he's not here, he's risen. So angels play a significant role in the Gospels, but no other Gospel writers record what happens here in the garden when an angel appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. Notice that this angel didn't come to make a lofty announcement. He didn't come to give Jesus permission to run away. This angel came specifically to strengthen him. I wonder how many times our desire to run away, to quit, to sidestep an opportunity is more harmful to us than it is helpful 
How many times is this, is this instinct we have to look out for ourselves to protect us? How many times does it do us more spiritual harm than it does us spiritual good? Now, don't get me wrong. There are always times when we should walk away. If there's physical or sexual abuse, we walk away. We get the authorities involved. If we're at a church that's preaching doctrinal heresy, uh, you know, we, we work through the, the authority structure to try to, to bring that to a resolve to fix that. But if we can't, or if there's no authority structure in place, we walk away. There are times when definitely we should walk away. But, but I think what we've seen in scripture more times than not, it's that in the hard times that we grow the most right? James says that our faith is refined as pure gold. Peter says that also through trials and tribulations, through the hard times, through the times when we want to quit. We become most like Jesus when we deal with difficult times and difficult circumstances and difficult people. Matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that part of following Jesus, part of being a Christian is dealing with difficulties, not running away from them. That's part of what it means to be a follower of Christ As we, we walk through those. We trust God to, to take us through those for our growth and for the growth of people around us. And so maybe what we need to do is not pray necessarily for a solution. There's nothing wrong with that, but, but maybe what we need to pray for is a strengthener, someone who will come alongside and walk with us who will help us to endure until God's will is accomplished. Recently, I, um, I began to be overwhelmed with anxiety about something I've been dealing with for a while, and it had flared up again. And, and I was just to the point, I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. I've tried everything I know how to do. I, I don't even know what the future holds in light of this. And I'd ask God to take it away. I'd ask God to solve it. I'd ask God to change what only he can change. And that's, that hasn't been happening. So I just said, God, I need someone to come. I just need someone to help. Will you please send someone to help me get through this? And in the next 36 hours, I had two phone calls from a friend who called to encourage me, to remind me, to, to strengthen me. And I got a text message from a friend who said, I want to meet you for breakfast in the morning. And, and over breakfast, he was able to encourage me and, and strengthen me. Now, it doesn't always happen that quickly for me. I, you know, and, and, and for, for none of us, is, are we guaranteed like a 36-hour response time, right? But when we're facing difficult times, maybe what we need to pray is not, God, take this away from me. God, give me a way out. But maybe what we need to pray is, God, will you please send someone to walk with me through this, to strengthen me, to encourage me to endure until your will is accomplished. Finally, I would say that when we are facing that desire to quit, to walk away, to be done, that we should pray for God's will to become our will. Pray for God's will to become your will. These are the actual words of Jesus' prayer, right? Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. It encourages me that Jesus was honest with his father. God, I don't want to do this. Take this away from me. You know, if Jesus can be that honest with his heavenly father, so can we. It's not wrong to say to God, I don't want to do this. This is too hard. This is too much. There's nothing wrong with that. 
But based on the way Jesus prayed, I would suggest there's a, there's a way to say that to God. I want you to notice that in this prayer, Jesus mentions God's will twice as much as he mentions his own will, right? Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Not my will, though, but your will be done. And I don't, I don't know about you, but, but, but I think sometimes this is where I get a little sideways, where I get mixed up. I mean, I, I will definitely throw in a not my will, but yours be done. You, many of you have heard me pray that before. But usually that's surrounded by uh, either spoken or unspoken. It would be great if this was your will, Father. Like, not my will, but yours be done. As long as your will is this. And that's where we get in trouble because my will is different than God's will. And, and maybe this is true of you too. Usually my will is about my peace and, 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 and a pain-free, pleasant environment for me. But God's will is usually about my sanctification, about making me holy, about making me more like Jesus. And, and that typically doesn't happen in pain-free, pleasant, peaceful environments. I think you have time. What I want to do is, is show you what I mean from the words of Jesus in a different place. We, we read this verse a couple of weeks ago, but we didn't really stop to consider it. Luke 9, 24. You may remember this is when Jesus is talking with Peter. Peter's just said, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, that's right. Now come be my disciple. And then he says this in Luke 9, 24. For whoever wants to save their life, I think we're going to put it on the screen. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, will save it. Jesus does an interesting thing here in this verse. We saw a lot of it in Psalms when we were studying Psalms this summer. It's called parallelism. It's where he takes two words and repeats them in different lines, uh, you know, in different parts of what he's saying. And except for this time, it's called antithetical parallelism, which just means they're opposite, right? So he says it once here and it means the opposite here. Let me show you what I mean. Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life, Let's hear that as whoever wants to see their will done. Whoever wants to see what they think is best for them happen. This is, this is um, uh, uh, when I choose to avoid a hard conversation because it's going to be difficult. Because I think I'll pay, save myself some pain and conflict if I don't sit down and talk with that person about that difficult thing that I see happening. It's when I choose to sidestep a significant responsibility or, or opportunity. It's, it's when I cut corners on, on a responsibility I've agreed to do because I think that it'll save me headache and difficulties if I, if I sidestep or if I cut corners. That's whoever wants to save their life. Jesus says... We'll lose it. That's, that's like saying we'll experience the pain anyway. Because perhaps you know this, when I avoid the hard conversation because I don't want to have the pain and conflict of having the conversation, what I actually do is introduce more pain and more conflict into the relationship. When I sidestep a significant responsibility that I believe God has called me to because I want peace and I want pleasant and I want pain-free, or when I cut corners on a responsibility that I know God has given me, because again, it's easier to cut corners, what I find is that I actually don't secure peace and pleasant and pain-free. I actually set myself up for more headaches and more difficulties. 
Because whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to see their will done, will lose their life, will experience the pain anyway. When I try to save myself by my own means and in my own ways, when I try to see my will done, I lose every time, every time. But Jesus goes on, whoever loses their life for me. Jesus says, who would ever pray and live Father, not my will, but yours be done. (laughs) That person saves their life. That person has a way through the pain and the headache and the difficulty that they didn't want to deal with, that they didn't want to experience. That person knows what it's like to live the life that God intended. The goal here isn't just to say, like, right, to say the words. We can all say them. Matter of fact, let's say them together after me. Not my will, but yours be done. Say those with me. Not my will, but yours be done. We can all say them. The goal isn't to say them, though. The goal is to mean them. The goal is to live them. The goal is to to pray and live in such a way that, that God's will becomes more important than my own will that I back away from my will, that I replace my will with his will. And that's tough. Because for God's will to be done, my will has to be left undone or has to be undone. I think of all the things that we've learned about Jesus praying, this is probably the most difficult It's hard. It's hard to surrender my will to him. Especially the more educated we are, especially the more money we make, the more success we have in the workplace, the more positive relationships we have, it becomes more difficult and more difficult to submit my will to God's will. This is one of the hardest things about praying like Jesus. But it's the most important thing about praying like Jesus, because until I'm ready to let God do what God wants to do, I'm going to make everyone else around me miserable, trying to exert my will over God's will. And everything I try to do to make things better, according to my will, is only going to make them worse. Father, not my will, but yours be done is the most difficult thing we can pray and the most difficult thing we can do. And if I don't miss my guess, there's quite a few of us here today who are struggling with that in some area of life. In truly meaning, God, not my will, but yours be done. I want us to consider that Jesus prayed this prayer just hours after he took the bread and broke it and took the cup and passed it. Today, as we receive communion, I want to invite you in the time between when I stop talking and the communion elements pass in that time, I want to encourage you to be praying about that situation in your life. Father, would you help me as Jesus did in the garden to come to the point where I can not just say the words, but where I live the words, Father, not my will, but yours be done. 
And some of you may want to pray about that in a different way. You may want to come to the altars and pray, and you feel free to do that. The ushers will be happy to let you pass. And we'll make sure that before we partake of communion together that you receive the elements. If you need to come and pray, you do that. 